We're in John chapter 15 this morning, celebrating 2017. I was telling the earlier service that 2017 is, marks a 20-year anniversary for King's Chapel. So we've been, uh, the first service, actually, the pastor who planted the church was here. Uh, so that was really cool. Um, and uh, had that first service, I think it was the 19th of January, and to, uh, 1997, Pastor uh, Perry Jones, myself, and a few other families uh, had gathered earlier in 94, 95, uh, 95, 96, then the church launched in 97, so 20 years. So we'll celebrate that as we gather um, on our uh, annual meeting together and just celebrate all the things that God has done and look forward to what God's going to do. So if you have a Bible, John 15, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, number four of one gospel, his name is Jesus. There are Bibles in the back. John chapter 15, I'm going to read all of uh, verses 1 through 17 to get its context. John chapter 15. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean. Because of the word that I have spoken to you, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment and abide in his love. These things I'm speaking to you, that, your, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants does not know what the master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Verse 17. These things I command to you, that you will love one another. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. If you have children that need to go to children's church, now is the time to go. Children are dismissed for Children's Church. And while we are in John chapter 15, let me just bring everybody up to speed quickly. We are in what is called the upper room discourse. Jesus had gathered his 12 disciples to eat the Passover dinner. It's Thursday night. It's the night before in which he is crucified. It's Thursday. Out of all the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, only one, John is the only one that does not give a description of what's going on at the Passover dinner, but just simply says in John thirteen four that Jesus rose from supper. But we know it's the Passover meal, and we know that it was a feast that they gathered together, all of Israel did, to celebrate their deliverance and redemption from Egypt, the, 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 the night uh, when the angel of death passed over their home, sparing the firstborn from death because of the substitutionary sacrifice of a lamb, the blood that was placed over the doorframe. And now we have the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, who takes away the sins of the world, preparing his disciples and 
really preparing himself for this, his own substitutionary death, the lamb who would die in the place of sinners. So John doesn't really talk too much about the dinner, just that he rose from supper, but John does give us, out of all the four accounts of the gospel, a very good and lengthy detailed description of what he was teaching his disciples before his betrayal uh, and deliverance onto death. So by the time we get to chapter 15, which we just read, Judas has been revealed already as the traitor. He went out into the night. Peter has been told, you will deny the Lord Jesus three times. But for the most part, as we've been studying this discourse, Jesus has comforted them in their confusion. He has loved them in their sorrow. He has given them promises and promises to encourage them, knowing that his time of departure was at hand. Chapter 13, verse 1. Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart. Talking about his death. Out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, to the utmost. Completely. And one of the things that Jesus is saying over and over and over again as we study John, and you can sum it up really in one word, and that word is just simply love. He loved them when he washed their feet. He loved them when he taught them not to fear. He loved them by encouraging them and, 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 and dealing with them in their loneliness and their fears and told them, don't be afraid, don't be troubled, don't be confused. But his love would reach that pinnacle when he would lay down his life, as we see, for them, for his friends. Love dominates these chapters. Chapter 13, new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. Chapter 13, verse 35, by this all the people will know that you're my disciples if you what? Love one another. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and I will manifest myself to him. John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. We hear it over and over in chapter 15 and chapter 16. By the time we get to chapter 17, we get this high priestly prayer. Jesus is, 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 is praying right before the, the, the people come and arrest them. And he says, I made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Love dominates these chapters and is the utmost importance second only to the glory of God. And I would argue that the glory of God is experienced in its fullness when we experience His glory, when we experience and get a glimpse of Christ's immeasurable worth and, and treasure Him as infinitely valuable. God's love manifests itself to us. Love is the key. Marks our life. Love is an identifying characteristic of genuine discipleship. Love marks our life. It is the identifying characteristic of genuine discipleship. And this, this text this morning is about love and friendship. It's a continuation of what Jesus is talking about, being in the vine. Jesus used a metaphor. He says there's a vine dresser. It's God the Father. He is in ultimate control. He is pruning and trimming, and, 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 and he's involved in the process. He's the, he's the master grape grower. Jesus says, I am the true vine, ego and me, eternal. It's the name that Moses was given by God himself, a self-existent, eternal one. I am the true vine. 
If you remember, last week, two weeks ago, we talked about this idea of vineyard and, and God and a vineyard and, and the vines being Israel in the Old Testament. is very common in the Old Testament. Jesus saying, you know what? I am the true and better vine. I am the placement of God's people. I nourish them. I hold them. I keep them. I am the true vine. He said that we, as children of God, we are in the vine. We will bear what? Fruit. We are the branches that bear fruit. He said if you're genuine, fruit you, you'll be pruned, we talked about that, through discipline and, and through uh, difficult times. So that the fruit of Christ's likeness, the, the demonstrating and the carrying of the gospel, the characteristics of Christ, especially love and good works that glorify God and makes Christ known to the world, will bear on our branches. But if we're make-believers, he says, they're cut off, thrown, and burned away, verse 6. All this, this, this whole idea of this metaphor really comes down to God showing us and teaching us how his genuine children abide in Christ and showing itself, proving itself to be genuine by producing fruit. They are productive. Chapter 15, verse 8, by this my father is glorified that you bear fruit, much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We said that abiding in Christ is not only and it is, but not only the mystical aspect, the spiritual aspect, that, that unseen aspect of faith, but that abiding has some very practical ways in which we are to respond, in which we are to stay in union with Christ. In fact, chapter 15, verse 4 is a command. Abide in me. Drink nourishment. Draw from the vine. Be, be, conformed, how? By, by the, be conformed to the will of God. How? By the word of God. Jesus said, keep my commandments, Te- learn from my teaching, abide in my love. I said last time, and I want to make it really clear one more time, it's very important that our responsibility and our command and the command to abide, our obligations to respond, our obligation to abide in Christ does not create, it's not the genesis of our loving God, our relationship with God. It doesn't make it, it marks it. All the things that we are obligated and commanded to do are the fruit of the relationship, not the root of the relationship. 1 John 4, we love God because he first loved us. That's the difference between religion and the gospel. Religion says, I'm going to love God, I'm going to uh, obey God, I'm going to do all these things, then God's going to love me. That's religion. The gospel is God loves me in Christ, provides for me salvation, calls me to to himself, and therefore out of his love for me, I will obey. Out of my salvation, I will obey. Big difference between the two. One will bring bondage, the other one will bring freedom and joy. Rather than obeying Jesus out of a sense of earning his love, followers are, are called to render obedience because of his love. Abiding, we said, also means that there'll be prayer. That you'll have a life of prayer. You'll be praying for God to get glory. Sinclair Ferguson said this. Abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affection. Drinking branches from the vine. Abiding in Christ also means, verse 9, drinking in the deep love of God. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. As the Father has loved me, Jesus is saying, as the Father loves me, I have loved you. I have loved you with that same love that God, the Father loves me. I'm loving you. And when we know that kind of love, when we understand the grace, the mercy, and the kindness of God's love and, and mercy and grace toward us, what happens? Verse 11. Your joy, my joy will be in you. Your joy will be full. 
And we pick up the metaphor, and I think Jesus is teaching us some more things about what it means to abide. What does it mean to drink? What does it mean to bear fruit? As we continue looking at this metaphor under three things. I think abiding in Christ, the true vine, we will sacrificially love one another. Number two, we will share in the intimacy with Christ. Number three, we will serve God by bearing fruit so the world can see. That's where we're going. Number one, sacrificially love one another. This is my command. We're still talking about abiding. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. Someone will lay down his life for his friends. These things I commanded you that you will love one another. Again, obedience doesn't make a disciple of Jesus. It characterizes them. It's by his grace and his mercy and through the gospel. But it's easy, I think, to miss a very important little word in that sentence. Verse 12. That you love one another as I, as, as I loved you. Father, we know, we know, the, we know the prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Can come. And when he gets to that point where he says, where we say, we pray it, uh, forgive us of our stets, as we forgive our debtors. See what you're saying? In the same way I forgive people, that's the same way I want to be forgiven. So we hold in bitterness, we hold in anger, we're just saying, Lord, just a little bit because I'm bitter. Just as, and that's what it's saying here. Love them as I have loved you. In the same manner. Well, look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus will give of himself as a sacrifice. We're going to get back to that in a moment. Jesus is obedient to the Father. In love, he sacrifices on the cross for our sins. But it is also an example for us to follow. Okay? The substitutionary atonement, the penal substitutionary atonement, died to pay the penalty in our place, is the pinnacle and, and the diamond of his sacrifice. But to a lesser degree, he did give himself for us as an example of how we ought to lovingly sacrifice for each other. Even the husbands are told to what? Love your wife as Christ loved the church who gave himself up for her. First Peter 2. For to this you've been called. He's talking about Christians. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So in what ways can we love and sacrifice for each other? It's a brand new year. The possibility that someone in our midst uh, will be called to give their life for someone is probably slim. Right? We've all heard people who have given their life for someone. Maybe someone actually took a bullet for someone or stepped in front of a car for someone or gave an organ or, 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 or you know, there's a war zone going on and somebody jumped on a, a, a mine and saved lives, right? But that's probably not going to happen here. Maybe, probably not. We've been talking a lot about security here at the church because, you know, it's a little crazy out there these days, especially if people want to kill a preacher. So if you see someone with a gun and they want to shoot me, you could take a bullet. It says it right here <laughs> for me. Just jump right in front. <laughs> Sacrificially loving one another can happen when we what? Sacrifice our time, room in our schedule, our busy schedule, sacrifice our possessions, given people in need, sacrifice our finances and those who are hurting. We can love people that way. We can sacrificially love people that way. As I was thinking about this, and what, is, what, is, what does it really mean to sacrificially love people? I said, well, let me, let me go to 1 Corinthians 13. 
Paul explains that, right? Love is patient, love is kind. Love is patient, love is kind. Are you, are you quick to be aggravated toward other people? Are, are you patient with people? Are, are you kind and approachable? I find that unkind people are not very approachable. Nobody wants to mess with the hornet's nest, right? Don't wake that person up. They're not really that very sweet. Kindness, according to one dictionary, is, is having or showing a friendly, generous, sympathetic, or warm-hearted nature. Hmm. Love does not envy or boast. It's not about what you have and what they don't have. Right? It's not envious. It's not boastful. Sacrifice looks to, to lift people up, to encourage people, to, to strengthen others. Love is not arrogant or rude. Arrogance and self-righteousness really go hand in hand. It's, it's antithetical to love. Paul says does not insist on its own way. It's not self-centered. It's not, it's not selfish. It's about other people, not about me. Love, he says, is not irritable. Maybe we shouldn't talk about that one. <clears throat> Grumpy, grouch, moody. Love is not resentful. It's not harboring anger. It's not keeping records of wrong. Oh, yeah, but you did that. You, you know, it's, it's, that's not love. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Love, what? Rejoices with the truth. Love, love sacrificially loving people is sitting down with people in love and relationship and talking to them and giving them a license to say, hey, I need you to call me out on stuff if I if it need to. Real loving sacrificial relationship speaks truth to one another. Paul says love never ends. And you know, when you put 1 Corinthians 13, you change the word love, you can put the word Jesus in the word for love. Just replace the word love with Jesus. It really does describe Jesus, and it should describe those who abide in the vine because Jesus is divine. We're the branches. Jesus is patient, and Jesus is kind. How many times did he tell the disciples, really, ah, we've been through this so many times before. You know, how, many, how long do I gotta be with you? Come here, let me, let me explain it to you one more time. He didn't say, look, you dummy, go into your room and try to figure it out yourself and let me know. He was patient with them. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he say? Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thine be done. Jesus is not irritable and resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus' love never ends. You see, this kind of sacrificial love cannot, will not happen outside Really, outside the work of God. Those who are abiding in Christ uh, understand his love for them in the gospel. They they understand God's love for them. They, They, in turn, love their God. And now they're called as Christians to exhort that kind of act of love in a a gospel way, in a a loving way, uh, in a sacrificial way toward others. See, worldly love is all about self-love. All about self-love. It's a lie that, you know, you just got to keep loving yourself. Remember Whitney Houston's song, Everyone's Searching for a Hero. Everyone's searching for a hero. People need someone to look up to. I never found anyone who fulfilled my needs. Very sad. A lonely place to be, and I, I learned to be dependent on me. I decided long ago never to walk in anyone's shadows. If I fail, if I succeed, at least I live as I believe. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity because... The greatest love of all is happening to me. I found the greatest love of all inside of me. The greatest love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself is the greatest love of all. No, it's not. Very sad. That kind of love originates from sinful self, selfish self. It means you're nice to me, I'm nice to you. 
It, it means if you love me, I will love you. It, 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 it's the kind of love that really is self-serving. What, what do I get out of this relationship? Genuine love is not about me using you. General, genuine love is about me loving you. It's supernatural. It's selfless. It is the work of God and the work of God only as we abide in Christ. Let me give us three things just to contemplate as we move forward in 2017. Three things about sacrificially loving one another. The first thing I want to mention is I want to look up. I, I want to praise God. I want to boast in the Lord for a moment. I really do. I, I want to say that we need to praise God for his kindness and his mercy and his grace and his love that he's shown to us each and every day and how, how his love in us has been a motivation here at King's Chapel, 2016 particularly I'm talking about, sacrificially loving one another. There's a lot of stuff I don't know nothing about going on around here, and that's okay. God knows. But there have been multiple, multiple ways that I do know about on how we as a family have really truly loved one another, how we really met all kinds of needs and and shown kindness and, and, and gave up finances for others and just sacrificially loved people. Whether it's in someone's sickness, whether it's the death of a loved one, whether it's trials in a marriage or simply just helping hands in a move, we praise God that God has shown his kindness to us and poured out on us and we have responded in many ways sacrificially loving others. We look up, we praise him. Number two, we look inward. And when I say inward, I don't mean in a heart. I mean inward in, in a close proximity. It's easy, to un, it's easy to read 1 Corinthians 13. It's easy to see Jesus say, love one another and look around just at people in the community. And we should. But really, that needs to start at home. Husbands and wives, sacrificially loving one another, serving each other, putting each other's first, giving up your time, being patient. Don't be irritable or rude or arrogant, lifting people up. Ladies who are married, men who are married, maybe with your children to love them, maybe to extended families to love them. We've got to do that not only globally, locally, but in our own homes. And let's not forget community groups. Maybe you're single. Maybe you don't have a whole lot of family, an extended family, but the scripture's pretty clear. We are the family of God. We gather as the church, and we scatter as the church. We're still family when we're not meeting here on Sunday morning. The building's not the church, right? The people are. And in our community groups, what do we need to do? We need to, to be loving one another, sacrificially loving, continually loving, at being, being the, the prime and, and the, the most important motivation in our gatherings to love one another. So we have to look up and praise God. I think we gotta look in and just say, let's let it start at home as well. And then finally, we gotta look, I, I think, outward. 2017 has started. What a great reminder. What a great truth. What a great reality. What a great, again, reminder to love one another. What kind of church would we, if we continue on this path, we continue to love the Lord even deeper, understand the gospel more, and deeply caring, loving, and treasuring Christ, and then Loving others sacrificially with our time, with our resources, with our finances. Just loving others. Not complaining, not groaning, but loving others. I think we can agree in 2017, we can revel in the love of God and then look for ways to sacrificially love one another. If we're abiding in the vine, we will love one another. Number two, we share an intimacy with Christ. I love verse 14. Look, you are my friends, he says, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I call you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. All right, Jesus is calling his genuine followers, those who are abiding in the vine, friends. 
But I want you to know something a little weird here, right? What kind of person, maybe you met one, I don't know. Maybe you meet someone for the first time and you kind of you click. You're like, hey, uh, hey let, let's be friends. Okay, well, this is how it works. We're going to be friends and you're going to do everything I tell you to do. You'd be like, what? You are my friends if you do what I command you to do. Hmm. The key, verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. There's something very different going on here with friendships. We're looking at friendships from our perspective. Jesus is looking at friendships from a different perspective. Dr. Carson, New Testament scholar, cautions us correctly when he says that we need to be careful about being too chummy in calling Jesus our friend. In the Bible, God and the Lord Jesus call certain ones their friends, but no human ever refers to God or Jesus as their friend. It's not a mutual reciprocal friendship. The Bible refers to both Abraham and Moses as friends of God. Jesus here calls the disciples his friends, but he's also still their Lord and teacher. What's happening here is if you look at chapter 15 again, verse 15, when it says, it says here, no longer do I call you servants, for the servants do not know what his master is doing. Unless you have a Holman uh, Christian uh, standard Bible, I think almost all the other English versions have the word servant. It's not really accurate. It's not the word diakonos where we get servant from, something, something that someone does. That word there is doulas, it's slave. It's something that someone is. No longer do I call you slave. See, we think of friendship as equality. We, think, we don't think in terms of hierarchy. We don't think of, of demands and commands and submission and authority. But what Jesus is saying, because it's, this is a, a particular kind of friendship, it is a, a slave friendship. I think the reason that many commentators or, or translators, I should say, do not put the word slave in there because of all its negative and, and really deplorable implications. But slavery, what we think of, a slavery that was going on then is not the same thing. In fact, in biblical times, sometimes it was good. They, they, people were loved and cared for more than they, it was the best possibility that they could ever have. Many of them were loved and cared for. In fact, the Bible says in the Old Testament uh, that when you want to serve someone and be their slave for life, you would voluntarily do that and put your ear on a pole and they would poke a hole in it indicating you're a willing slave. Now, the Bible doesn't condone or condemn or establish slavery, Right? It recognizes it as a social construct and condemns sins that are related to it. In fact, it condemns sins related to all social constructs. But to understand what Jesus is saying, you got to understand what a slave is. I mean, slaves in those days also had high responsibilities. They were highly intelligent, some of them. They held high responsibilities. In fact, slaves in that day became so trusted with the kings and, 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 and emperors and, and friends of Caesar. Excuse me, they became friends of Caesar in a way. So you have slaves in that day that were very close. Friendships were developed where the slave in Pharaoh's home or, excuse me, in, in the emperor's home would actually be one of his top confidants. Very close. They were a slave, but they were friends with the king. Now, don't get me wrong. Slaves had no rights, no standings, couldn't go to court, couldn't own property. A slave is someone who was bought and owned, had no freedom and no autonomy, right? But that's different than a servant. Give me a glass of water. I bring all that up is because the Bible teaches us very clearly, listen, if you're a Christian today, you're a slave. 
You're a slave to Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, you are not your own. You have been bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. The Apostle Paul talks about Epaphras as a beloved slave. Timothy and Peter, a slave. The book of Revelation opens up John, a slave. Romans, Philippians, and Titus, Paul writes those letters, and the first thing he says is, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. That may not sit well with you. You may think, I never heard that before. A slave. Well, let, let, me, let me make it easier for you, okay? Everyone's a slave. Everyone is a slave. Either you're a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you're a slave to God and righteousness, which leads to life. That's it. Romans 6. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You weren't doing what was right. You had no power to do it. But what fruit were you getting at the time from those things of which now you're ashamed? The fruit of your unrighteous behavior, slavery to sin, you're ashamed of. For the end of those things is death. But now you've been set free from the slavery of sin and become what? Slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification is being come, transformed into the image of Christ, looking more like Jesus. And its end, eternal life. Slaves of sin, death. Slaves of God, righteousness. For the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christians, are you free? Well, No. We belong to Christ. My freedoms, my convictions, my actions, everything in my life is defined by him. I've yielded my life, my will, and my rights when Jesus is now Lord of my life. He's Lord, I'm not. I've resigned my unreserved submission to the control and commands of Christ. We are slaves to God. He bought us from the marketplace of sin, death, and hell and redeemed us by his precious blood. We now belong to him. We are not our own. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what it means to to be a follower of Christ. And when you see it that way, verse 14 makes sense. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I, and I like the word, I put the word in as my word, only call you servants or slaves. Why? Here's the difference. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I brought you into the family. Through my atoning sacrifice, you're no longer just told what to do. That's what slaves were told what to do. No questions asked. You don't ask the master. You just do what you're told. That's what they did. But now, you're on the inside. Now you're on the inside. Your intimacy with God. Again, Carson writes this. Slaves are simply told what to do. But, talking about Jesus, while his friends are informed of his thinking, They enjoy his confidence and learn to obey with a sense of privilege and with full understanding of their master's heart. So also here, Jesus' absolute right to command is in no way diminished, but he takes pains to inform his friends of his motives, plans, and purposes, end quote. It's intimacy. Jesus is sharing with us. Jesus is bringing us in. Jesus is revealing the things of God, the secret things of God, the, 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 the things that he has known from the Father, he has shown us there's a change. Some of you have served in the military honorably and bravely, and we commend that and thank you for your service. When you were in boot camp, maybe you've never been to boot camp. I, I was in a boot camp, kind of not a military, but in corrections, I wouldn't call it a boot camp, but you know the deal. When you're in boot camp and this drill sergeant tells you Go over there, 
You pick up the shovel, go over there and dig a hole. I want it four feet wide and six feet deep. You didn't go, why? You got your shovel because he owned you. You knew it. And you dug that hole. And you didn't ask no questions. And if he said, you know what, I'll put the dirt back in, you say, yes, sir. And you put the dirt back in. But what if he befriended you? What if he began to give you orders, but he began to share with you? He, he began to share with you what he was doing. What was his purpose? What was his plans? What was his reasons? There'd be a relationship change. That's what you see here. You see, when we are in the vine, we're clean. That's what it says. We're in union with Christ. When it says we're clean, we're already clean. Um, chapter 15, verse 3. He, he's looking forward to the cleansing work of the power of the, of, of the cross, the cleansing work of Jesus. You're already clean. And now you're brought into a deep intimacy with God, so we call you friend. And how does he come to us? Well, let me tell you. Muhammad may have wrote a book, but he's dead. And now we just have his words. Confucius, whether you're Buddha, we have Proverbs, we have sayings, we have dead people, and sayings of dead people. When Jesus Christ teaches us and shows us and commands us, he shares himself with us. He's alive. He gives himself to us. When you receive me, Jesus said back in 14, God comes to you. He dwells in you. Jesus manifests himself to you. It's not just words coming to you. It's not just an intellectual connection with some dead people. It is reading God's word and learning and knowing and loving a person. It's connection with a living Christ. Slaves only do and do and do and do, but friends are invited into the relationship with God. And when he speaks to you through his word, it changes you. It moves you. You come to realize that the book, the word of God, is a way in which he's bringing you into a deeper, intimate relationship with himself. Ephesians 1, Paul says, I pray. I pray, Ephesian church, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you may grasp the love of God. I love that. That is a slave who is a friend. That is a slave who is a friend. Christianity is about a relationship with a sovereign Lord who calls us friend and shares himself with us. Do you understand that? A friend who is equal can't save you. A friend who is equal can't change you. A friend who is equal can't contradict you. But a friend who loves you is there for you. A friend that is a sovereign Lord and a loving God who brings you into a close, brings you close and shares and reveals himself to you. He is the one that can love you, forgive you, change you. We share intimacy with Christ. And that should look different in our community groups. That's friendship. That kind of friendship should make itself known. And we should, we should be able to share our lives with others. You guys could talk about that in community groups. We don't have time for that. Lastly, we serve God by bearing fruit. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. So that whoever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Listen, if there's any doubt, if there's any doubt or question on how you become a Christian, how you are placed in the vine, whose choice was it? This should really clear it up. You did not choose me. I can't really get any more simple than that. Not ambiguous. Simple, ambiguous, negative statement. You did not choose me, but I chose you. No confusion. 
No confusion. If you're a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in the vine. You've been elevated to this intimacy and sharing of a friend. It's not because you chose him. It is because he chose you. Right there. Not volunteer position, right? We may be privy to truth and intimacy. Not, it's not because we're wise, not because we made choices, not because we're better than anybody else. It's because Christ in his mercy and grace and kindness has chosen us. It's the only option. Listen, we've got three options. Either Satan chooses us. That's not good. Sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sin, who can't respond, who are dead in their sins, choose sin. That's all they choose. And that's by that choice, you've made your decision. Keep on sinning. Or three, God chooses. God is the one who chooses this undeserving person, Lou, an uh, ill-deserving person to show his mercy and grace and kindness to. And it's humbling. It should humble us greatly. God in love, Ephesians says, chose us in him before the foundations of the world and predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. If we think we have chose him, we have failed to understand the brokenness of our sin. We have not truly understand our depravity and we have not given him the praise for his unmerited nature of God's grace, the unmerited nature of God's grace. The truth is... We fail as friends. We, we actually become his enemies. We rejected his rule over us. He, we scorned his love, and yet God pursues us. God loves us. God calls us. God opens our heart and mind to see the beauty of Christ, and we are humbled by that. Now, we certainly make real choices. Whenever we talk about choosing, God chose me. I didn't choose him. Well, then, then we don't choose. No, no, we do. The day that you said yes to Jesus Christ is the day that God opened your heart. The day you said yes, that real decision you made, and it was real, that you received Christ if you're a child of God. The choice is the result of God's grace and power to open your heart and mind to see the beauty of Christ. It's not you. It's the work of God. It's the result of what God is doing. And though he invites us, None of us take him up on his offer until he opens our hearts. He pursues us diligently, compassionately, lovingly, and, and works a miracle of this dead sinner to see the beauty and glory of Christ and need of salvation. But let me tell you, it's not about pride. It's not about exaltation of self. Look what it says. When you are brought into the vine, when you are a, a slave friend, this intimate status of Jesus... It's not a futile privilege, it carries solemn responsibilities. And it's granted to them, look, in the context of mission. I chose you, you didn't choose me, and what? I appointed you that you should go. You should go and bear fruit. Matthew 28, as you are going, make disciples. As you go, bear fruit. Live on mission. Demonstrate the gospel in deeds of love and sacrifice. Loving sacrifice. And declare it in truth. That's what happens when we abide in the vine. We have this awesome privileges to be chosen of God, appointed of God, sent out by God into our work, into our school, into our neighbors, into our home, wherever it be, to bear fruit. Fruit, he says, that will abide, that will last. And Jesus says, so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In other words, whatever the will, when you say the name of, in the name, it is the will of God, it is the will of Jesus. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. 
And we ought to pray that we, as we go into 2017, let us be a people of prayer that we'll be good friends, sharing with people, loving people, extending hands of love and friendship and to others, and people will come to know Christ, know God's love for them. And the overflowing joy of watching someone you know go from death to life, <laughs> it's, it's just indescribable. Bear fruit that remains. Now, let's end verse 13. In order to be a friend of God, in order to be a friend of God, in order to remain in the vine, in order to bear fruit, you've got to understand verse 13. You've got to take it in for yourself. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. I will tell you that Jesus Christ is the only one who truly, voluntarily gave his life for anyone. No one else did. You may give up, you may take a bullet, you may, you may jump on a, a, in front of a car, you're not giving up your life, you're giving up a couple of years, but your life is already accounted for. The Bible says the wage of sin is death. That's the end result. The life you have is short-lived. Death has mastery over us because of the curse. We're going to die. Jesus, the Lamb of God, the perfect spotless one, there was no claims over him because he never sinned. So when Jesus gives up his life, when Jesus gives his life, he truly, voluntarily gave his life for you because death had no hold on him. Jesus gave his life for you. And he says, if I lay down my life for you, that's real friendship because my death truly saves, truly and completely can clean and forgive every sin. There's a place in Philippians, many of you know this. Have this mind also among yourself, which is yours in Christ, who, Jesus, though he was in the form, Morphe, of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't stay but emptied himself, how? By taking on the form of a slave. That's the word doulas. He was born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, slave obedient, to the point of death, even death on a cross. The sovereign becomes a slave and submissive to the father in order to be our sacrifice. He is a son who possessed all the glories of heaven and emptied himself of them to become a slave so that you, a slave to sin, can become a son, a daughter of God. That's the motivation. It's the gospel. Are you a friend of Jesus this morning? Do you know that truth? Do you know he laid down his life, the only one who gave his life, a perfect life, a life that had no hold on him? Death had no hold on him for you. Do you know that he gave his life for you? Communion is all about that. The bread is resembling or or, or a picture of the body that was broken, the cup, the blood that was shed. That's what communion is. And Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, is here, present through the Spirit, inviting you to come. Maybe you've never made a commitment. Maybe you've never seen Jesus as a friend who gave his life for you. Today's the day. Yield to Christ. Turn from your sin. Repent of your sin. Bow your knee to the King of Kings, who's the sovereign one and a loving friend. And maybe, maybe, 
Maybe as we take communion, the band's gonna come up. We're gonna spend some time in prayer. We're gonna spend some time uh, confessing our sins, repenting of sins. Uh, As long as we're alive, we we sin, we need to repent. And then we're gonna celebrate the forgiveness that God has offered. And maybe there's someone you need to go to that you were rude and unkind or whatever. And maybe that God wants to put that on your heart. It's not earning salvation, it is cleansing. It is the work of cleansing. It's the washing of the feet. It is the washing of Jesus on a daily basis. It's called confession, repentance, and celebration. That's what we do at communion. Father, Father, we ask that you would pour out your spirit now, Lord God, that we would, we would recognize and see Jesus, the King of kings, Lord of lords, calling us friend, setting us free from sin, We want to be slaves of God because we know in the slavery to God we are free from sin. We are forgiven from sin. We are loved deeply and we have life in your name. Father, we pray as we confess and repent and then celebrate the supper, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed. Father, pour out your spirit. Let us see Jesus for who he really is, as Savior and Lord.